This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingleton. Taylor Moore. Jay Darden. Congressman Garrett Gray. Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is The Clay Young Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to episode 189 of The Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com and on iTunes and pretty soon coming to a major media app near you. Working on it, pretty close to it. That's not pie in the sky. That's almost a done deal and I can't wait to announce it. Hopefully that's going to be sometime in the next few weeks. But anyway, we are glad to have you here and we have two discussions with two phenomenal people and I'm looking forward to both. We are going to have a discussion with Congressman Garrett Graves about what's happening in Washington, D.C. It is pretty much a train wreck right now and he's going to give us some insight from the Hill on what's going on now that the the government shutdown has passed three weeks, going on four weeks, you know, moving pretty much to a month, and with the debate over the State of the Union address and all of that. So we'll talk with him. But first, because we want to start on a high note and something positive, we will talk with actress Elizabeth A. Davis. Now, her story is pretty amazing. She's from a small town in Texas, and from that town has made it all the way to Broadway. She's also done television. I became familiar with her because of an episode of Blue Bloods, my favorite show on television, Tom, the Tom Selleck-led uh, series that's been on now for over nine years. And I guess maybe four seasons ago, she played a villain on the show and was really compelling. She stood out. Well, her father-in-law is a friend of mine, and he posted some family pictures, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, where do I know her from? And it just hit me because I remembered that episode, and after a few conversations, she agreed to come onto the show and talk about her journey from Texas to where she is, and I just know that the passion and intellect that will come off of her will be very rewarding to not only someone who has an interest in getting into the arts, but people who are just thinking about wanting to pursue their dream. And my conversation with her is going to be first. And after we talk with her, then Congressman Graves. And then I've got information on a couple new shows coming to podcast225.com. Excited about that. Really excited about it. So let's take a quick break and then come back and talk with Elizabeth A. Davis. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Roderick, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com iTunes and the Talk 107.3 mobile app. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. 
If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Back with Elizabeth A. Davis. She is a Tony Award and Drama Desk Award-nominated actress who has performed on and off Broadway. She has also done television. I was going to say a second ago that this is Tiger Country and she's a Baylor grad, but we're not going to hold that against her for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> uh, she has been on and off of Broadway. That's right. That's right. She's She's been on and off Broadway, a writer, a singer, and most importantly, a wife and mother. And man, I'm looking forward to talking with her. E, how are you? Well, I'm wonderful. How are you doing? How is Tiger Country? Uh, Tiger Country is great right now. It didn't end exactly like we wanted it to, but it could have been worse. Listen, all my love to Tiger Country, Baylor Bears are, you know, the Bears and the Tigers, I'm sure, have have lots of love for each other. Lots of love. Lots of love. Well, you know, let's let's start at the beginning. We (laughs) kind of referenced where you went to college, but where'd you grow up? You know what? I grew up in a tiny town of 363 people. I think for a majority of my living there, the census um, reported 257 people in the town. And then we went up uh, to 363. Um, I did. I I grew up in a very agrarian small town in the panhandle of Texas. And I'm really thankful for it. Uh, A lot of my family still lives in the area. My parents still live in the house I grew up in. So it it was truly um, a grounded, safe place to try and fail a lot. Uh, My parents loved theater and music, and uh, it was very much an educational uh, scenario. But nonetheless, they took kids off farms and, you know, ranches and around the town and just gave this high school of 40 people every year, um, a love and appreciation for theater and, and English and all of those things. So, uh, my parents really were the inspiration as for, I'm sure many, many of us, uh, our parents just lived out an appreciation for the things that we found our way into as well. Um, and then I, yeah, I found my way to Waco, Texas, man. (laughs) So, uh, is, 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 is that where the bug was that where the bug kind of hit you for acting is with your parents having an affinity for theater? Yeah, my my parents, God bless them. They every year directed a high school production from the time uh, my mother was pregnant with me until after my younger brother graduated. So um, the you know, the cycle of of prepping a show, rehearsing a show and performing a show was just a it was in the DNA of my growing up. Um, my mother also put together a, a melodrama for the town, and people would come from the tri-state area to come check out this, you know, shows like Tied to the Tracks. And, and they used all of the money, and they bought a fire truck and an ambulance for our little bitty small town. Um, so using theater for justice, for social awareness, for just transforming people's lives for the good was part of that's just how I 
grew up, and that's still a part of how they live. You know, it's it's interesting because you you are someone who has performed on and off Broadway. You've done television shows. I mean, so you have made it to the heights that many young people, I'm sure, in schools around the nation are trying to get to. Mm-hmm. What characteristics, mm-hmm. when you look back at that journey, what characteristics do you think were most important in you getting to where you are now? Oh, gosh. I, I would say grit, G-R-I-T, is, uh, is number one. There, there's this pervasive idea right now that we're trying to to jump over a bunch of character building and craft building steps to get to this elusive idea of fame. And that is just poisonous, in my opinion. I think that it is essential for people to say, I have a calling to a craft. I believe that I have something to give in the long term to this field. And that grit and willingness to stick with it no matter what I think that is what allows people to um, have longevity because, listen, this is a crazy industry that's going to kick you in the teeth. Life is crazy, right? Like, So I feel as if um, grit, determination, uh, um, a willingness to say, even if I don't check off all the boxes of my, like, how I want to accomplish things, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to give up and say, oh, well, I don't care about this anymore. Um, I really, truly feel called to this. And I also feel as if something that trips a lot of people up, and, and I'm sure myself too at times, but I think especially right now, we get tripped up on this idea of um, it, it's hubris in essence. It's I think that knowing that I'm a vessel and that I honor and and ultimately I'm a servant to my work. Like, how can I serve the work? Uh, how can I be a part of it and not necessarily the totality of it? Um, those things, man, I think that that allows people to say, uh, I just want to come to the table and be a part of this creative meal. However it is served up. It's interesting because I often find that people, when they have dreams, can romanticize about them and only think about the end part of the journey and never really take into consideration everything that you have to do between where you are and and that place that you're trying to get to. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, I just read this really fantastic article in... uh, amazingly buzz I think it's BuzzFeed News or something I I think that it should be in every publication but uh, it was called why millennials are the burnout generation (laughs) and uh, you know I I won't spend time uh, telling you all all about that but I guess side note or a parenthetical people should check that out to uh, kind of go alongside what I feel uh, my answer to your question would be but um, just the practicals for me is that I went to college, I got a degree in theater, I had no connections, I had no idea of how I was going to find my way into doing this professionally, even though I watched my parents do it on an educational level. Um, so I went to graduate school. And if if young people out there are interested in perfecting their craft, in creating relationships 
that will aid you professionally, but you don't want to have to shell out a bunch of money, which I don't think you should. Uh, There are a few graduate programs across the country that pay you to go. Three-year graduate program um, takes care of your expenses, and that definitely was an essential part of my journey. Um, I was able to get my equity card, which is being part of the union is a central part of doing professional theater in the city and elsewhere. And then I was able to have a showcase to get an agent here in the city. Um, so, so then I have a graduate degree and I have an agent and then I started working at Starbucks. Um, so I, even though I say all that, I think that, um, a big part of the journey too is like, my gosh, I've done a hundred different things, um, to stay here in the city. And I think that, gosh, I really wish graduate programs or even, you know, undergraduate BFA programs would really have a hardcore business of the big business class to give people just solid practicals of like, how do I juggle this crazy ball of living in New York city? Um, what do I, how do I deal with my finances living on a freelance artist stipend life? Uh, so I think, just having some really hardcore life skills, uh, as this article I was referencing calls it, calls it adulting, really knowing how to uh, adult and prioritize and time manage well, I think is an, a, a really essential part of uh, being able to, to be, a, in essence, an op- entrepreneurial freelance artist. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, in those years in college, Elizabeth, and and all of us have been there, you are so filled with idealism and what you want to do and and how life is going to be. You you don't really have that boots on the ground reality about what it truly takes to not only get to successful places, but remain there. And I think I think that's a good thing you're talking about, that that practical information that says, hey, you know, if you have student loans, you're going to have to work not you know not just to eat and have a roof over your head uh, but you're gonna have to pay those loans back and you know and then what opportunities where do you need to be what do you have to pay for to get into the doors to meet the people that can start you on your journey I I think it's bigger than you than you sometimes realize especially when you're in your young 20s you know that's that's right uh and I mean I mean you said it I I read a book over the um Christmas break, uh, which is called On Mental Toughness. And I wouldn't say it was a book as much as it was a collection of essays that the Harvard Business Review has put together. Um, and gosh, it was just such a great reminder of what um, what they call in one article, crucible moments, oh. and how, you know, these high-powered people in business will have a pretty sideswiping, devastating moment in their career and how the, the the collection is about how we deal with those crucible moments, how a, they are pretty essential to establishing longevity and the character needed to continue, but then also how to, how to not get mired in those crucible moments. And uh, so, so I think it is great for young people to know that failure is essential. It's just a matter of failing forward and knowing that um, that forward failure, it's like, what do they say? Whoever fails the most wins, right? So yeah. you fail, you get up, you fail again. And so I, I think that young people are, are pretty shackled with um, wherever it has come from, but this mantle of perfectionism and, uh, you know, 
wherever that comes from. But but I think that it's really important for young people to know, or any of us, any person to know, that um, failure is essential. It's it a is. friend. It is. And, you know, the thing is, that one of the things that I've often believed, Elizabeth, is that a person who has never failed at anything is a person who has never tried anything. I think it's impossible there you go. to get to a place in life where you have learned how to stand unless you've fallen a few times. And it's not that's not even some philosophical garbage. That's just a truism that people who have lived long enough will all agree with. Failing will happen in life. Absolutely. It just shouldn't stop you. That is, that's exactly right. And, and not only, and I know you would agree with this, but not only in our work and our professional lives, but my goodness, in our relationships with our friends, sure. in, in my marriage with my son, uh, if, if I'm going to, I'm going to fail, I'm going to say things I shouldn't, I'm going to have to apologize. Right. We're going to have to, you know, put it in reverse and sure. try again. Um, so I, that that's real wisdom. So, yeah. you know, I think in life and, and there are when you're in a profession, there are moments that happen where you look back at those moments or that moment and you say, that is when I made the shift to get to this place. What was that moment for hmm. you? Huh. Well, hmm. There are a couple that seem obvious, and and maybe I'll mention those as well, but there is one moment. I remember the angle. I was standing. I know where I was facing. I know the things that were in the apartment when it happened. But my first year in the city, speaking of agents, my first agent in the city dropped me after my first year. They called on the phone. They were like, hey, this is not going to work out. And I was like, okay. And, And that was it. And I remember standing in the apartment with the sun streaming in at a certain time of day and and thinking, okay, girl, are you going to buckle or this is grit time, right? This is go time. And I I always think about that moment and I I figured it out and I'm in an agent relationship now that I adore and is really healthy and I'm so thankful. Um, But that was a moment. That was a real clinching moment for me of are you going to do it or are you not going to do it um yeah it's it's interesting because what i want to tell you (laughs) are like some career high moments but but if i'm honest with myself i think the the answer are like we don't find ourselves in those peak moments we find we gird our loins and the the valleys and there have been enough of those valley moments where where you where I've had to steady myself and say you're you're going to keep going and you're okay right um, Right. I, I think I think you're describing it, it's so amazing because you're describing that passion and that hunger. And what I hear you saying without saying it yet is like, I'm not done. I'm not there. I'm. I'm still. Even though you you are you're right. doing it, I'm sure in your mind you're you're like, man, there's a lot more to do. I'm not there yet. Sure. No. That that's right. I mean, and I, I feel everyone's on the continuum in different places, and so I know that um, I had a, a cousin recently that came to town to see my last show, and she was like, Elizabeth, you you know, you're always working. You're always, you know, we're so proud of you. Like, and in my mind, I'm thinking that's amazing that you see me that way. <laughs> but um, 
but I don't I don't see it that way. And so I guess it was a nice reminder to be like, Elizabeth, be thankful for for the enormous ground you've covered, um, and and be humble in the enormous ground you hope to cover. You know. So yeah, I think just keeping keeping our heads down, being thankful, and and not looking back over our sh- shoulder to enjoy our laurels too much, is the thing that um, yeah, like you said, keeps us hungry, keeps us going. Um, but but to one career high, I, I remember the, the morning that I was nominated for a Tony. Yeah. And uh, my downstairs neighbor came running up, screaming up the stairs. It was something that I never. Uh, I, I just had no concept that that was possible or or going to happen. Um, And so that was a really amazing moment. But, you know, that um, uh, what's what's it called when um, imposter syndrome? Yeah. And that imposter syndrome kicks in. And so actually there was a nomination for a, a there was a drama desk award nomination for another show that I did that actually feels more special to me because it's it kind of uh, it allowed me to say oh maybe maybe it's not just a one-hit wonder maybe there's something to this you know maybe we can maybe uh we'll just keep going so those two moments were really special you know i mentioned earlier that you have been on and off broadway and obviously for career actors having the experience of having been on broadway is is very very special what did it mean to you mm-hmm. it uh first of all the show that i did like i said my parents directed theater this whole time they also put me through violin lessons the money my grandfather worked a farm his whole life and money that was given to me to buy a violin and put me through violin lessons um all of that so this show enabled me to kind of synthesize all of those things. I was able to use the violin. I was acting. I was uh, singing. Um, it just felt like a real synthesis, and it also felt like I was standing on the shoulders of of so many people who had made sacrifices for me to be there. And uh, so it felt like being able to make an enormous gesture of a thank you, and that was really special. Um yeah, it it was also just a lot of fun, and it also opened my aesthetic in a way that I couldn't have imagined. I recently, or have been the past four years, I've written a musical, and doing once on Broadway really allowed me to see that there is an opening for people to sound like themselves on Broadway right now. Um, there had been a pretty narrow tonality, I guess, uh, a narrow way that we viewed musical theater and once the show that I did and a variety since then have expanded that as a musical palette. So I've been able to seize on that and create my own stuff and sound. The musical sounds like I think what I am, which is a New York Texan. And uh, that's, (laughs) yeah, like whatever that synthesis means, but it's uh, been a really Yeah, it just opened up all kinds of doors, and it's been very—it was very special. 
I re- I was I became familiar with you and your work on an episode of Blue Bloods, which is maybe my favorite show on television. Yeah. I've seen every episode of that show, so I remembered the role. And when when I saw the picture that Malcolm posted, I'm thinking, wait a minute. And and then we had oh, a conversation man. about it. And so I remember that role. But the the thing that was most interesting is not mm-hmm. only were you very good in it, but you also had to speak a second language. As that villainous character in 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 that show, <laughs> yeah. so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the dialect coach was literally helping me still form the words, like in between takes. So uh, the the accent I had been working on. Mm, Two, over two or three years because different show I did a show called 39 Steps that had a Russian accent and a British accent um, and then once had a Czechoslovakian accent and so oh gosh what was Blue Bloods was that Roma- it wasn't Romanian I think it was was it was it, it was, was in the Eastern European vibe okay yeah it what? was Polish or something I, I don't know but it was it was because one of the other characters one of the main characters uh, uh, played the well. You she went undercover into this this trafficking ring that you were running, and, yeah. and I just I just remember thinking, wow! And and that show has always been so well written, and it was just every scene totally. worked out well. And then so I mean that's obviously filmed in New York, and so being able to do that right. that experience working around the Tom Selleck's of the world who are who are there. Mm-hmm. and and you know who are masters at their craft what did you get from that experience yeah i mean tv is such a wonderful beast and we're totally in the golden age of tv right now i mean you see all kinds of people all kinds of bodies all kinds of everything in, uh, on tv right now and i i think that what, what i appreciated most was you know, in theater, you go from beginning to end every night and, and you get that full range of emotional arc in one sitting. Um, and in shooting television, it just goes so quickly. And the expectation is that, you know, you are moving at the speed of light with everyone else. So you get to you have to have the the expertise to jump in with an emotional moment that isn't necessarily on the arc as it would be theatrically. So I think it takes a very special skill for, for TV actors to, um, to learn that, to be able to punch in and punch out and, and be exactly right on the money emotionally. I see that Kevin Costner is now, and I've actually watched the show. He does a, a television show on the Paramount Network, which is basically a, a, a modern Western. And he's a film actor who said, you know, <laughs> and, and, and working with Taylor Sheridan, that Sheridan contacted him and said, hey, do you want to do a long movie? And explained what the concept of that show was going to be. He fell in love with the script. And, and I've, I've read the same thing from mm-hmm. the other actors who are on the show. It is gripping, but it is mm-hmm. also, very jarring if you watch television because of some of what <laughs> is on that show, but it's still very good. What do you think about some of these Hollywood, um, you know, bigger movie actors deciding to want to do television now? I don't know if I can intelligently speak to that too much, but I, I, I think as I earlier said, the way that, well, network television no longer has like this stronghold of you know, 
being number one. Like we have so many platforms on which people are creating. And so I think there's a diversification that's happening that I'm sure film actors see. And, and well, I'll just attribute it in the way that I, in my language. On Broadway right now, we have a lot of pieces that are big money makers and they're, they're a safe sell, right? Um, we call the, the Disneyfication of Broadway. We have shows with name value that anyone across the country is going to recognize. They're safe bets. But what you have off Broadway are the really, truly interesting pieces of theater that are electric and exciting and taking enormous risks. And it's not a huge financial risk, so people are willing to take it creatively. So I, what I see happening is, is as you're describing, television is, is kind of, I, I guess for lack of a better comparison, it's the off-Broadway. It's this very exciting, juicy place where um, who doesn't want to do that creative work? Who doesn't want to dive in and say, we have no idea what might happen on this emotional journey? So I guess that is my slightly layman version of understanding um, why, you know, Kevin Costner would, would give it the nod and go for it. You know, and, and, and moving on here, when, when you are in your element and, and you are either performing on stage, either in a production that you have written and, and are a part of or uh, acting out on someone else's work, talk, take us through your mental preparation and what your focus is mm-hmm. as you are delivering a performance. Hmm. Wow. Um, okay. I found that I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty, uh, intrinsic. I'll say physical when it comes to unlocking a character. So there's a lot of heady work. We call it table work. So the first three or four days of rehearsal, we'll just be around the table. We'll be dissecting intention and conflict and arc and denouement and and all of these things in in a text. And then we kind of throw that out the window and then, and then we do our best to take that heady knowledge and just completely work it in cellularly. Right. So my, my aim and what I found most successful for me uh, as a, as I guess a craftsman in those moments is to just get it in my bones, get it in my muscles, get it actually in muscle memory. And then that's where, that's where the instincts can take over is when it's completely rote. When you, when the lines are down completely, you know, you're blocking completely. Um, Only then I have found for myself, at least can the exciting work start to happen. Um, So I think a, a, a good night of theater for me is when I completely know and understand and have gone through the thought process of building my character. Uh, lines are no longer an issue. And you're able to walk into the space having zero nerves and simply play. I mean, it is called a play. Right, right. <laughs> and I think that that's a really important word um, that we are adults who have chosen to continue asking the question, what if and why? And, and letting ourselves imagine. So it, I think it keeps people young. 
It does. I think I don't even I don't know what the statistic is, but even somewhere around like 10 years old, uh, creativity, imagination, all those things fall off because we're our education system and perhaps rightly so in many ways, but it teaches us to give the right answer. Uh-huh. And I think that what I get to do when I when I go through a play is I get to say, what if there isn't a right answer here? Um you know, there is a Meisner technique, the acting of acting technique of Miser. Their um, their quintessential statement is yes and instead of no but yes and what's next. And so, I just think that's a great thing to take through life. Yes and there's an openness to that. Uh, so that may be a little more esoteric than you were. No, 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 no. I think there are, there are layers to what you do as a performer and anything that is an art, I think just requires a certain depth of focus to get a depth of feeling, you know, from, from people who are watching it. And I know it's hard. What is the hardest thing about having to perform as an actress? Hmm. Well, in theater, it's the repetition on the body. <laughs> uh, I know I know a person who turned down Hamilton on Broadway in the chorus because that show, as brilliant as it is, is extraordinarily difficult on the dancers' bodies who are in the chorus. Um, I actually got a uh, shoulder injury in my last show, and I've I had a surgery after about a year and a half after leaving once. There's a variety of things that doing the same thing over and over just it takes its toll so that's that's just top of mind because i'm dealing with this sprain um, i think the other thing is a lot of people deal with in a in a long running show how do you keep this fresh you know if you do tv or you shoot a film like you you get it in the can you shoot it you have that magical moment and then it's done and the magic of theater is also it's you know its trick, its downfall is we have to do this over and over and it has to be new every single time. How do we do that? If you were, if you had the opportunity to talk with, and and this is kind of a little bit of a nuance to this question, if you had to talk with someone who was wanting to go into acting, whether it, it would be on stage or on television, your motivation to them would be what? And also just for someone who has a dream that may be a little bit out of the box, but they, they, it's what their passion is. Mm -hmm. How would you motivate them to go after that dream as well? Mm. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll answer with something that I tell people in my life who feel paralysis around what's next in dealing with an acting passion. I say, put together a reading series in your apartment. Write. Sit down and write something and then put the monologue on tape and share it with your friends. Uh, I think that we move inches and then we and then we look up and we've moved a mile. But we discount those inches, right? As superfluous or not important. No. If young, if people who are wanting to pursue acting do one thing every day, sorry about the noise, that is practical, um, 
from a business standpoint, but also is um, just putting, as your word, boots on the ground creatively. So put a reading series together. Go see a play. Um, Set up a meeting, a coffee meeting with a person in your community that works at the local theater. Um, You know, YouTube, how to use an accent, any number of things, those small inches count. And extremely practically, you know, there are BFA and MFA programs and theater out there that are wonderful. There are also a plethora of platforms now for young people to learn and put themselves out there in new ways. So, and I, I, I guess my last, my last response is just passion. Why do you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Is this more about you than it is about the craft? Is there anything else you could do? Probably do that. <laughs> but if there's not, uh, truly, if, if there's nothing else you can do or imagine yourself doing, um, then start looking toward doing the work of educating yourself and becoming a craftsman, not just pie in the sky. Because pie in the sky does not, it doesn't have, um, it's not going to stick, you know? No, it isn't. And again, romanticizing about anything can sometimes be a really, really bad trap uh, because it keeps you from doing That's the right. real work of becoming good at something. You know, I, I've, I've spoken to artists over the years in, in many different you know, venues of entertainment and the consistency of what they said. It's kind of what you just said. You got to put the work in and you got to be good. Hmm. Yeah, I, what is that? Who who said, you know, you have to put in, was it Malcolm Gladwell that that coined the 10,000-hour phrase of anyone to become an expert at something must put in 10,000 hours of practice at that thing? Uh, and that that's that's a lot of time. But, but that shouldn't be a deterrent to starting. You know, I'm also a big proponent of saying today is a new day. Anything could happen. Pick up a new hobby who knows what could happen? So I think holding both practicality and and hard work in one hand and then holding winsomeness in the other is a great approach. Well, listen, I, I hear your passion and the intellect that you that you have for what you do and how you're able to articulate the in, the inside of it. If someone wants to learn more about you and what you are doing, how can they do that? Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth A. Davis, Elizabeth A. Davis, just minus the H. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same handle, Elizabeth A. Davis. Uh, My website is soon to be updated, but uh, ElizabethADavis.com. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Well, it has been a great, great pleasure to have you on and and talk with you and and listen. The, the next Same time to you, the, the next time you're in Baton Rouge, I hope you can come and do this in person. Hey, I would really love that. Uh, my husband and I always love coming down to see Malcolm and Donna and 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 the whole gang and um, and now now I've got a add you to the round. That's, I'd love that's to come a, by. That's exactly right. And and just to be able to talk more. Like I said, I've gotten I've I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. I have. I really <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing. 
Um, and and by all means, please keep doing it for the good of <laughs> Louisiana. Will do. And we'll beyond. Do. Thanks, E. All right. Congressman Garrett Graves is next. Hi, this is Mayor Sharon Weston Broom inviting you to listen to the We BR podcast, an initiative of my Women's Advancement Commission. Our show will air the first and third Wednesday of each month. We invite you to listen to our podcast by visiting www.podcast225.com. That's www.podcast225.com and by subscribing through the Apple Podcast app. That's We Be Our Podcast. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Back with Congressman Garrett Graves. He represents the 6th Congressional District in Louisiana. He has done so since 2015, and I'm pretty sure the congressman will admit to us that this last few months may have been the strangest he has seen since being there. Is that a fair assumption? It, it really is. It's uh, It's been fascinating. Uh, first of all, of course, the, the change in leadership from majority Republican to majority Democrat, um, some of the changes that have come in 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 just the first few weeks of the Congress, some of the the rule changes, some of the, uh, I guess, ideological changes, some of the style changes, including um, shifting from uh, Democrats like Speaker Pelosi and and Chuck Schumer actually being supportive and funding and voting for and speaking in support of border wall and border security to now uh, opposing it just just within a few short months. it, It really has just been surreal. So let's talk about specifically the last couple of weeks, because people care, obviously, more so about what's been happening recently. Uh, When you and I spoke a few days ago, we were going to address the controversy with Representative Steve King. Well, that's kind of moved to the back burner because of the intensifying rhetoric with the government shutdown. So let's just go right to that. Where is that right now, and what is your confidence level about this being something that will get to a resolution in pretty short order? Well, Clay, the the reality is that you can't have a merit-based negotiation. You can't have a merit-based discussion if everything is just being considered in the political realm. And as I noted, here you have Speaker Pelosi, you have Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, you've had Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and others who have all spoken in support of, of a wall, of, in support of border security. You had the, uh, some of the top immigration officials under President Obama who spoke in support of this just within recent days. And you have a total flip-flop just because President Trump has asked for a wall. So, so both sides are very dug in right now. I don't see a, a quick resolution, but one of the things that's adding pressure to this is innocent federal employees not getting paid. Uh, and, and there's going to be another pay period, including for members of Congress, 
at the end of this month. And I think that that's going to further ramp up pressure for people to come to the table and actually negotiate. The president has invited uh, Democrats to come to the White House to sit down and discuss this, and folks won't even come to the White House to actually even have negotiations. So I don't see uh, anything happening uh, this week and probably next week, but I think once we get closer to the end of the month, you're going to see uh, probably a little bit better um, actual negotiations occurring as, as the pressure ramps up. So the president's been clear about saying that there can be no reopening of government or getting back to business as usual until he gets the $5 billion for the wall. All right, let's talk specifically about the $5 billion. Does that amount of money exist in the budget that can be allocated to the construction of the border wall? Without question, uh, that that would not be hard at all to uh, to 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 have in the budget. It, it clearly could be uh, added within the existing allocations of the of the budget. And so the money is there, and there is a political battle that you referenced earlier about whether or not we should be building a wall and whether it is a question of national morality or immorality or all of that. With that being the backdrop for this discussion, it seems to me that it's hard to find a resolution because it's all about politics. It, it, it really is. And so you try and have merit-based discussions and talk about how uh, 90% of, of some categories of drugs, illegal drugs coming into the United States are crossing over that southern border. You have a discussion about how 31%, according to Doctors Without Borders, of women making that track are sexually assaulted on the journey. Um, you talk about the fact that these are the same organizations that are profiting from human trafficking. Excuse me. <coughs> human trafficking. Got you all choked up here on the subject. Who? Um... <laughs> Uh, human trafficking and illegal drugs and other things, uh, these people are profiting from it. I mean, they're profiting, it's some estimates, $2.5 billion a year in profits from these illegal activities. But, but Clay, where I think it comes down to is, is just thinking for just a minute, who are you representing by saying that we shouldn't have border security? Are, are you representing Americans when you when you do that, or are you representing folks from Mexico and Central America, and as we've seen in, in recent days, folks from Bangladesh and Pakistan and Afghanistan and other countries. So poor security is in the interest of Americans. We are not the same country as these other countries that I named. And many of those other countries, including Mexico, are having huge problems with violent crimes and control of their country by cartels. We don't need that here. We need to distinguish our country from others. Clay, right now we have hundreds of miles of border wall, vehicular wall, and other things. Have you ever heard somebody come out and say, we need to take that out? Have you ever heard somebody say, Never. we need to eliminate our immigration checkpoints? Have you ever heard Never. anybody say, we need to stop all this customs and immigration at airports? Well, frustrating. No one's ever come out and said that. And so I think this is an entirely political and disingenuous position that, that Nancy Pelosi, Schumer, and others are taking. Um, it, there is no policy merit to what they're doing. It is entirely inconsistent with things that they've said in the past. These illegal immigrants are coming here. They're costing our taxpayers money. They're taking jobs from Americans. And I don't know how anyone can stand there and say they're following their oath to the Constitution of the United States that they took when they were sworn into office by representing the best, best interest 
of folks from other countries at the expense of Americans. I don't know how you do that. I, I don't know that I even believe that that is a sincere rationale behind what is going on. I think were it not the border wall, it would be something else because I think I, I think we can agree. Let me not assume. Let me tell you where I am. I think this is really about President Trump and the fact that Two sides have never been more at loggerheads about everything than than maybe right now and and possibly in our country's history, save the period of the Civil War where both sides are just not interested in talking. And I agree with you. I don't think that there is anything immoral about wanting border security. And I'll throw something at you. I often wonder why is why is this conversation not including an aspect that modernizes the immigration system as it exists for people who want to come here legally? And, and Clay, that's a that's an excellent point. You and I discussed this the other day. I think there are three important components or three legs of this stool. One of them has to be border security. One of them has to be better enforcement of our immigration laws. But the third one is the one that you noted, and you're exactly right. We need to reform our legal immigration process. And even this president's talked about it. Chain migration, lottery system for immigrants coming in from other countries. All of these things need to be looked at. But it is also important to keep in mind that America lets in more immigrants into this country than any other country in the world. And, and all of these things need to be looked at. Some of these folks saying, oh, you're being callous by, by, by putting up walls or border security. Look, we need to know who's coming here. We need to make sure the people that are coming here are coming here to, to, to uh, pull the cart, not ride on it, that are coming here to uh, contribute to the safety and the security of Americans, not take away from it or threaten it. Because we know that there are millions of people around the world that want to come here and challenge the United States sovereignty to threaten the security of Americans, our economy, our families, and our businesses. And that's wrong. And so um, it, it, there's nothing immoral about having border security and knowing who's coming in and coming out. I mean, Clay, you think about it for just a minute. Um, how many people have those video doorbells or have a peephole on their door or have locks on their doors? Our church has locks on the doors. Right. It's not because you don't want people to come in. It's because you want to know who's coming in. You want to make sure people come in at the right time. It's it's entirely reasonable in your home, on your business, on your church, and certainly for your country. So this this whole discussion is it's ramping everything up. Now, there is an aspect of this that I do think is worth discussion, and that is during the election and the campaign to the presidency, the president did say Mexico would pay for this wall. And I think many people, even those who supported him, believed that that meant it wouldn't take American dollars to do so. Since then, we have heard that it may have something to do with the trade deficit and what's happening there. Kind of speak to that, because he did when he was at rallies. He said, we're going to build a wall and who's going to pay for it. And everyone said Mexico. What about that? Yeah. Well, look, I I certainly can't speak for uh, the president's intents when he made those comments. I'll also tell you that when when I heard it, I didn't think that Mexico was going to be cutting a check. Hell no. an indirect mechanism, such as, as he's talked about the trade agreement, something else I've thought about is how many of these illegal immigrants come here and send their remittances or their paychecks back to uh, their families in Mexico so the dollars are not spent in the United States. Um, other things are cutting into these profits, as I mentioned, the $2.5 billion a year estimated profits that these criminal organizations make through through uh, smuggling or human trafficking of, of foreigners into the United States. 
Um, and, and in addition to that, uh, looking at ways to help provide cost savings through our social welfare programs, our Medicaid program, through free education for these illegal immigrants that are coming to the United States, through a reduction in all of these, these court and adjudication processes that happen uh, as a result of illegal immigration, uh, reductions or savings of American dollars, taxpayer dollars, through reduction in all these detention facilities and other things. So there's no doubt that this wall can pay for itself, whether it's paying for itself through a reduction of emissions and, and profits to the country of Mexico or to these cartels, or it's a reduction in taxpayer funds as a result of all of these free services that illegal immigrants are given simply by crossing the border into our country. And, you know, I, I'll, finally, I'll ask about the most recent news from the as we record this from the last uh, 24 to 36 hours. And that is Speaker Pelosi asking the president to delay the State of the Union address or in, issue it or, or send it in, a, in writing and not do the address that happens every January. And she cited some security issues. Well, members of the security community, international, you know, the, the, the Homeland Security and these agencies have says, hey, we can handle protecting everyone who would be there for the State of the Union address. Get, kind of give us some backstory on that and tell us where that is right now. Clay, they're nearly two dozen law enforcement organizations uh, in the District of Columbia. Um, the Speaker of the House herself is, is not responsible for the President's security at the State of the Union by herself. Uh, there, there is a, a huge organization that begins planning this months and months ahead. If there were any red flags, if there were any even remote security threat to the Congress, to the President, to the Cabinet, to the Supreme Court, as a result of, of having a State of the Union speech. Those red flags would have gone off weeks or months ago. Um, this is not a, a scenario where the, the Speaker of the House needs to stand up and speak for the, the, the security um, uh, the, the security apparatus of our country. Uh, that, that's just not that, – that she, she obviously – is the presiding officer of the House of Representatives, but that's why we have Secret Service, FBI, we have Capitol Police, and, and many, many other organizations, law enforcement organizations that are out there. That community needs to speak for itself, and we don't need to have a self-anointed security expert determining that there's a crisis when no one else concurs. So do you think the president will be delivering that speech on schedule? You know, that's going to be, that's going to be up to the president, but, but uh, I, I certainly am not aware in recent history of any State of the Union that, that, that did not occur. The president has a number of options. He could choose to, to do it via, via video out to the American public. He could choose a different venue. Um, I think there are a number of options that are out there, but I think that this is just playing a game. Here we are in a shutdown. I think the president of the United States absolutely in this critical time should be out there communicating his vision, his policy ideas uh, to Americans as has been done uh, every year as, as long as I can remember. I am very concerned about the precedent that the current tone is setting because in the era of social media, I don't have a lot of confidence that this is going to get better. And if we normalize this kind of behavior in one person's opinion, I think we're asking for trouble in ways that we probably don't even comprehend yet. Is that fair? Clay, I've been I've been saying for months now that the that the tone of, of politics in the United States is is one of the greatest concerns that I have. I think it's one of the greatest threats to our country. Um, whether it was the 
newly elected member of Congress using awful language uh, about impeaching the president, uh, whether it was in something that really got brushed under the, the rug and, and, and has bothered me, being a, a former intern in the United States Senate, having an intern in the United States Senate coming into the Capitol when the president was there and screaming incredibly vulgar words to the president and her getting a light slap on the wrist. These are supposed to be political leaders. These are supposed to be thought leaders for our country. And, and if these people are leading us in that direction or allowing that type of behavior to happen without sanctions, that is absolutely inappropriate. And let me be clear. Let me be crystal clear. Uh, Steve King's comments were entirely yep. inappropriate yep. as well. And, and so, so it happens on both sides. Yes, it does. Uh, I've said in the past that I think that the attack on Steve Scalise was, was partially motivated by this, this awful rhetoric and social media and people's comments that are incredibly insensitive or volatile or provocative. I agree. Um, and so this is one of the greatest threats, I think, to our country that's ongoing right now. And I think people being able to hide behind social media and other things uh, really does contribute to that. And that people need to spend more time face-to-face talking and realize that these are real human beings that are there, um, uh, that, that are there doing and saying these things and trying to represent people around this country. Well, listen, I appreciate the time you gave when you're back in the district and you've got some time to, to sit for a lot longer. Uh, let me know, man. I'd love to sit with you in here and not just talk about what's happening in current news, but what's on the horizon for the country and for this district in Louisiana. Love to do it. Thank All right. you. Thank you, Congressman. Executone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one. Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology while saving money. That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here, and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call, 225-295-3500. That's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here, and they're going to continue to give you great service. Talk about getting two for one, huh? Two really great guests. Hope you enjoyed listening to Elizabeth talk about her journey and you you can hear you can hear her actually thinking about what she is going to say. And as someone who has interviewed literally hundreds of people, that is not always the case. Often people think after they speak. (laughs) And I just admire people in any profession, not just in entertainment, but in politics and law and medicine, who put a little bit of thought into what they're going to say before they say it. So that worked out, and her journey is amazing, but I could tell you, she's nowhere near, and if you listen to her, you can tell she doesn't talk like someone who feels like, oh, I'm here. She still has that hunger, and like, I'm going to go get it, and I've never met anyone who was great at anything or have never admired from afar anyone, whether it be an athlete, an actor, or a person in business 
who conducts him or herself like they've made it. It is almost always about the next destination in the journey. And I think you can hear that in her voice. So hopefully when she's down here again, she can come by the studio and we can talk face to face uh, just about more about what she's doing in the industry. And you had all of her social media handles and her website, ElizabethADavis.com. And then we spoke with Congressman Garrett Graves. And I think you can hear the frustration in his voice, the agitation about what's going on. There are no winners in what's happening right now on either side of the aisle. And I think it's it's becoming more and more embarrassing to watch. And, you know, from the the discussion over the wall and shutting down the government to not allowing the president to give his State of the Union address to the president not allowing Speaker Pelosi to use a an aircraft for a foreign trip. And I'm just thinking, okay, guys, all right, let's wrap this up, you know? And I just don't feel like that is anywhere near, but my fingers are crossed. So who knows? But we'll get the congressman back if something pops up that is noteworthy for you. I mentioned in the beginning we have two new shows coming. I think you heard a promo for one of them. Uh, First up, The Waiting Room Podcast is returning from hiatus. Dr. Mary Catherine Rodrigue, Dr. Katie Fetzer, the owners of The Wellness Studio are coming back with their show. The first episode for 2019 is going to air at the end of this month. If you recall, their show, a new show drops on the first and fourth month of every month. And new to podcast225.com is the We BR podcast, that is Women Empowering Baton Rouge. It is a function of Mayor Sharon Weston Broom's office. She has a Women's Advancement Committee and Commission, rather, and it is a collection of, of ladies, a diverse group of ladies, a collection of them from all across this city and, and from other areas who contribute here, who have done well in business and in work in the community and work in government. And they're going to be talking about their journeys and sharing inspirational stories. And episode one of the We BR podcast is available for you right now at podcast225.com. And later this month, and this is the first time you will have heard this, former Baton Rouge police chief Jeff LaDuff, who was the first African-American police chief for the city of Baton Rouge, and his son, Kelly LaDuff, are launching a podcast called The Generations Podcast. It is perspective on not just law enforcement, but current events, public safety, and business from the perspective of two generations of people, father and son. Episode one of that show is already in the can, and I can tell you, you are going to love it. But don't play it on the speakers at work. <laughs> it isn't it isn't inappropriate. Well, I guess that depends on your definition of inappropriate. Let's just say the subject matter is one that I, you will enjoy hearing about. Some of the colorful ways that things are addressed might end up uh, being problematic if you're playing them over the big speakers on your job. Don't do that, okay? All right. And you can look for that at the end of the month here on podcast225.com. 
Thank you, folks, for chiming in with us uh, on social media and emailing us. You can contact me on Twitter at ClayYoungBR, on Instagram, Clay underscore YoungBR, and on Facebook, just Clay Young. And you can email me at Clay at Podcast225.com. That's Clay at Podcast225.com. Thanks for hanging out again, y'all. It's been fun. Until the next time, have a great one. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.